From KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide, this is Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Seamus. Hey, Lindsay. Good to hear you. Hi, Seamus. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Nick. Taylor, you're sounding a little far away. (laughs) That's because I'm in Park City, Utah. In the last couple of shows, we've been talking about how I've been working on my bike, getting it more ready for gravel riding by putting fatter tires on and stuff like that. Go tubeless. (laughs) So last weekend, I was in Park City doing some riding, and we did the hat trick of riding. We did a road day a gravel day and a mountain day. It was so much fun, all so different. But in a place like Park City, you can really do them all. We were riding on Park City Mountain at about 9,000 feet on the mountain bike. And then we were on the Union Pacific Rail Trail, which was the old Union Pacific Railroad. And it's another one of those rail trails that we've been talking about. And then the first day was just on the road. So it was really a nice trip. And I got to tell you, my bike handled it well. Well, you're always calling in from someplace. Great. (laughs) That's because we're on strike, Nick. Lindsay's not. Seamus is not. You're not. And our guests aren't. And yeah, we have some good guests today. Todd Scott, who's the executive director of Detroit Greenways Coalition, and Cynthia Rose, the director of Santa Monica Spoke in Santa Monica, California. Todd, you have some news? We have some good news coming out of our state capital with regards to speed limit laws. You know, there's an effort across the country to try to lower speed limits. But in Michigan, in the previous session, the state police were hoping to raise speed limits in residential areas to a higher number, perhaps 30 miles per hour. Right now, it defaults to 25. They never got anywhere on that effort. The legislators left a sunset provision within the state law so that the 25 mile an hour default speed limit on residential streets disappears at the end of the year. And there would be no speed limits on residential streets in places like Detroit. So this is a bill that we've jumped on and we've been trying to get it moving. It did get stuck. It got stuck along with another bill that provides more flexibility in setting speed limits beyond just using the 85th percentile. For those who don't know, the 85th percentile means you set the speed limit based upon the 85th fastest motorist on the road. And you don't take into account land use or parks or crash history, the presence of bikes and pedestrians, all those important factors that you think would be involved in a speed limit, they aren't now. But this law would provide more flexibility for local governments to do that. And we reached out to the Speaker of the House, who's a Detroit representative, and he moved both the bills, and they both passed the House. And now they're on to the Senate. I think we're in a very good position. We have some very good connections in the Senate and expect them to move through the Senate and get passed, hopefully by the end of this year. I hope that goes through. There's no speed limits on residential streets. Sounds like a terrible idea. Well, they put a sunset in there, so it forces the legislature to come back and reevaluate what the existing law was. It was in there. We didn't want that in there to begin with. We opposed that, but the Michigan State Police would not approve the legislation unless it had it in there. That's so interesting. In California, there was legislation to change how we set the speed limits based on the 85th percentile, and there were two opposition groups, the AAA and the California Highway Patrol. And I never understood, like, what is going on with law enforcement saying, let them drive as fast as they can. Well, the Michigan State Police, we've been in meetings with them on this bill. And some of the things that came out of their mouth, my jaw dropped many times. I couldn't believe that they were saying this and that they weren't up to speed on the most recent studies and research on speeds and speed limits. And it was very disappointing. But I think eventually they relented on this bill. So they're not wanting to raise the speed limits any longer. And it could be, and I'm just guessing here, that when you lower the speed limit, you might have more cars speeding and then the police feel like they're not doing their job as well. What was their stated reason? They thought that 25 miles an hour was an artificially low speed limit. 
So what's the new speed limit going to be? We want the speed limit to stay 25. We don't want it to go away. It's a separate bill that allows cities to set speed limits based upon more than just the speed of cars. Is there a movement of 20 is plenty? Are you seeing any energy around that? I think first steps first, we got to get this sunset removed so that the 25 stays. We could potentially change the law down the road to allow cities to set it below 25, but I'm not clear there's much appetite for that in Detroit. The speed hump program has been much more effective. It's slowing cars down than posting another speed limit sign would. Good luck in Detroit. We have a good show today. We got Michael Schneider with Streets for All. We got Guardian article writer about lower cancer and walkable communities. Well, this is a really wonderful article from The Guardian U.S. because it was a 24-year study of women in walkable and non-walkable neighborhoods. The data shows that people who live in a walkable neighborhood have lower rates of cancer because they live in walkable neighborhoods. Kids who grow up in car-centric neighborhoods, rates of anxiety go up 20%. And for adults, rates of depression go up maybe 10%. We have a lot of communities that are in car-centric areas that are subject to the pollution and they have all sorts of health impacts. And when you have a walkable community, you have fewer people driving and you have fewer impacts from the pollution that is created by car-centric cities and towns. Then you add on to that the health benefits of walking as opposed to driving. Yeah. And there are kids who can't roam. They can't be independent and they can't have the freedom to walk around or bike around. It really impacts so many things about their mental health. That was another study that just came out. So it really affects us in so many different ways. And that's why things like the Detroit Greenway are so important because they are connecting neighborhoods that for years have been cut off by arterial roads and highways. That leads into the safe routes to school where we know that kids that are active on their way to school learn better. Data that has been out there that has been suppressed or ignored is starting to surface, supporting over and over and over all the different aspects and layers of how when we design a city or community around cars, it's to the detriment of everything and everyone. It intersects with everything. When we plan cities where people can't live where they work, they have additional stress. They have time away from their families because they have to travel further. I mean, we could just go from tippy top high level down to the micro and we would find indicators at every single level that make us less healthy, less mentally stable, less, less, less. And the only thing that's more is just more driving makes a poor quality of life. I think we haven't quite seen how big a role One simple thing is in our lives, and it's cars. And people have been trying to sell us cars for 70 years, and we now have the future that they wanted us to have. Really badly, we need to get away from cars. I think as much as it's intertwined in our economy, it is very much in the fabric of the way we think. You look at a Super Bowl car commercial, and where are they advocating for public transit? Where are they advocating for bikes or walking? You never see that. So the third interview is with Seamus. It's your interview. You rode your bike on Valencia Street. So, yes, I got to go to San Francisco and I rode the Valencia Street bike lane and I got to talk about it with Tom McGuire from the San Francisco MTA. My takeaway was that I like the center lane. We actually have a center lane in Santa Monica for one block. It is how we get from 7th to 6th Street by Santa Monica High School. We need to think out of the box on what we implement. And sometimes the only solution is 
something like that. That is the best solution on Pico Boulevard, which is a busy street, even three blocks from the beach. But that is the only way we're going to get safety for bicyclists from the north to the south and vice versa. We've had a couple interviews with people who are diametrically opposed on the Valencia Center Lane. I want to talk to you about what we can do about divisions among bike advocates. You know, there's always going to be two sides or varying opinions. I think we need to look at our commonalities and really sit down with open minds so we can figure out how to rework the car-centric California that we've been spoon-fed and marketed. And the only way we're going to get out of that is if we work together. They're having troubles working together up in San Francisco. Yeah. For our new bike lanes, which are protected infrastructure on 17th Street here in Santa Monica now, we have cyclists that don't think they're very good and don't like them. And then we have probably the majority that absolutely love them. And I think a lot of those are families with children. This really represents something that is the best kind of infrastructure that they're comfortable taking their kids on or novice cyclists. I think we need to all be respectful of opposing opinions, but understand that we're always not going to get what we personally want and that what we want may be the best thing for our community or what somebody else wants may be the best thing for our community. There are varying degrees of that. At the Valencia Street Center Lane, there are cars that just go in there. It's far from ideal. We're talking with the mayor's office in Detroit about center bike lanes on a major state highway that would be five miles in length. And the reason why it's looking attractive is because the road runs at such an angle that all the intersections are really off skewed and allows cars to turn at high speeds through the bike lane, which would not be good. But if we put it in the center, we would avoid those conflict areas. So it's something that we're looking at. It would be relatively new. I think maybe the first one in Michigan. So we'll see where that ends up. A center bike lane like that. The speed camera program, AB645, is a pilot program. I would like to see San Francisco add it to that. I would like to see more enforcement. It's one of the tools that we're going to be using to change our cities, to change how we get around. Enforcement is always going to be an issue because it gets misused. I appreciate and I'm really looking forward to this pilot, but I think that also we can't design our bike lanes with enforcement as the angle to keep them safe. We need to design them so that they're safe without enforcement in the same way that we need to design our streets so that cars aren't encouraged to speed on them. We know we can do this. It's just a matter of getting our cities to try these best practices and do these pilots that can prove that these things work. Cynthia, I love what you're saying. And I'm curious, where is the guide? Newsletter. Just kidding. (laughs) No, no, seriously, I'm reading that. The width of the street determine the speed. And I'm also really obsessed with like, we don't talk enough about making things 100% safe, safe for everyone so that there is no risk. There are definitely ways that we design our streets that will slow traffic. And the width of the lane is definitely part of it. The caveat there is that if we have public transit on there, they need to be wider than they would if we only had cars on there. So that's one, but also straight lines. I don't know if you have seen pictures of Europe, the lines on the side of the road are kind of at an angle to the road. Just those visuals that are symbols like that have been proven to slow down traffic. Like there are so many tools that we haven't used. NACTO continues to add those tools to the NACTO guide. And I think that is the easiest place for us to look here in the US, I think, off the top of my head anyway. 
Cynthia Nato yeah. is the National Association of Transportation Officials. Yeah. They do many, many design guides, and a lot of those things can be found in those design guides. And that is really sometimes the first step to, into getting those into the another acronym, MUTCD, which is the traffic design manual that if you put anything on a street, it must be in there or you need to get a variance or a permission to do a pilot. They provide a lot of the advocacy work to kind of get these proven techniques of slowing traffic into our design manuals that engineers use in cities. There was another thing that you said that you asked, Lindsay, and I can't remember what yeah, it- about creating just 100% child safe environments. So I don't know that there's a way that we can do that. But just with Vision Zero, we need to design our streets so that when incidents happen, the, the result is not killing people and causing catastrophic injury. But if we design our streets for pedestrians, then everyone's going to be safe. That's my baseline opinion. If we design streets that are safe for people walking and biking, then everyone is going to be safe, including people that drive. Cynthia, thanks for coming on. I had a lovely time with you guys. Thank you, sir. All right. Can I answer the question about the speed cameras? Because it's something we've been talking about quite a bit. I'm part of the Transportation Equity Caucus, and I'm also part of the Association for Pedestrian and Bicycle Professionals. And this topic is being discussed quite a bit about how do you do speed cameras equitably. And I'm kind of coming to the position that speed cameras shouldn't be used as an alternative to complete streets investments. You make the investments, you do the complete streets design, you get the majority of people to slow down. But to take care of those folks who are still driving recklessly... We need speed cameras to enforce that. And unfortunately, Michigan speed cameras are not allowed. There is legislation introduced that would allow speed cameras in construction zones. And a bill has just been introduced in the, in the state to allow speed cameras in school zones, which we support. But neither has passed yet. So we're kind of in a holding pattern for the moment. Have you been able to find that you can slow cars down to under 18 miles an hour through design? I don't think we've gotten down to 18. We've done some streets where there are curbless designs and very highly textured road surface, which probably get cars down to 20. And then in neighborhoods, we've been doing speed humps. Last week, Detroit installed 10,000 speed hump. I think we're leading in speed hump. If there's a competition, I think we're number one. What the city has found is that on residential streets where the speed humps were installed, crashes are down 36%. So I don't know what speed the cars are going. Typically, a speed hump's designed for 20 miles per hour. There's still cars going pretty fast over these speed humps. But for the most part, residents seem really excited and supportive of them. How about we play this interview next with Michael Schneider? So what do you think about making it automatic that every time a street was repaved, the city would put in bike lanes or bus lanes automatically? Michael Schneider, he's the founder of Streets for All going to talk about his initiative, Healthy Streets LA, and let's play that interview. So I'm with Michael Schneider, founder of Streets for All. What is Streets for All? Uh, Streets for All is a LA-based advocacy organization, and we fight to make the streets of Los Angeles safe for all modes of transportation. You've inspired a lot of people who have said that you do more than any of the professional advocates but you've also ruffled some feathers, I think it's fair to say. I have a lot of respect for people that have been doing advocacy work for a long time. I guess I would say two things. One, Street Sprawl has a political arm. We are still the only transportation-focused political action committee in LA. So we're really the only ones that could tell you who to vote for. That's really important. It sits in those seats at city council. 
determines a lot of what our built environment is or isn't. I don't think the system of power in Los Angeles and the way decisions are made and where funding goes and how quickly things get done is really working that well right now. So I'm happy to disrupt that. Your signature initiative is the Healthy Streets LA, which would take power away from people in in city government. Yeah. The idea behind Healthy Streets LA is really simple. We were tracking the city's repaving schedule for a few years. And every time the city repaves a street, it's essentially a low-hanging fruit, almost free opportunity to implement the city's mobility plan. For those that aren't familiar, the city of Los Angeles passed a mobility plan in 2015. We have about 7,000 miles of roads in Los Angeles, and about 40% of those are on the mobility plan. It doesn't mean every street has a bike lane or every street has a bus lane, but all of those 40% have some sort of treatment that would improve our streets, slow cars down, make crossing the street safer, make riding a bike safer, make transit more accessible and more attractive. And the Sages wasn't getting it done. They've done 3% of their own mobility plan in seven years. And so instead of it being a 20-year plan, like it's supposed to be, that's a pace for making it a 200-year plan. So Healthy Streets LA is a very simple idea. And once it becomes law, you're going to see change. And it means that the city would not be able to repave one of its streets without also implementing its own mobility plan. That's it. We didn't change the mobility plan. We didn't add on to it in any way. It's the city's own plan. We just want to get it done. And by the way, the city's own plan isn't perfect. It's not the best bike network. It's not the best bus network, et cetera. But it's a great start. And once we get that plan in the ground, then we can lay out the next chapter of the mobility plan. But just neglecting it and not doing it today is the status quo. And we felt that needed to change. And so a ballot measure, can any city, can any state have a ballot measure? Or is that a California thing? Ballot measures exist in all 50 states. It's really a way of going over the heads of the people who are in what we could call the system to the voters. Yes, but I don't know if I'd characterize it that way because remember the city council passed the mobility plan. You can make an argument saying the mobility plan passed nearly unanimously. I think there were two no votes and 13 yes votes because they knew it was advisory. They knew they didn't have to implement it, but nevertheless, they voted for it. It is the circulation element of the city of Los Angeles's general plan. So yes, Healthy Streets LA once passed would require this. It wouldn't be subject to individual council member prerogative. I also think that's a good thing. If you are a council member that doesn't like bus lanes, doesn't like bike lanes, you should want this to pass because you can just hold up your hands and say, it's out of my hands. It's the law. I got to follow the law. And if you're a council member that likes bike and bus lanes, you should also be cheering for it because it's going to accelerate what you care about. So either way, I think this is a beneficial thing. Remember, LA has 15 council districts. Trying to build a region-wide network of anything is impossible if we have individual council member prerogative, which is what we have today on the mobility plan. And if people don't like the mobility plan, if they say, well, a lot has gone on since with our understanding of street design or transportation since 2015, I don't know, would you say that that's true? A lot has changed since 2015, but it all still makes a lot of sense. It's still attacking the high injury network, which are the 6% of streets in LA that account for 70% of the injuries or deaths. So any traffic calming and any improvement in safety on those streets is a good thing. And the mobility plan streets are almost all high entry network streets um, on the major arterials. So, you know, things can change. The Nothing in the measure prohibits the city from going further than the, mo- than the mobility plan. 
or even sh uh, shifting and changing the existing plan as long as it's done in a way that advances it and it's not changing it just to remove something. In a way, it's like a floor. The mobility plan, you know, if you want to make it better, you can, you just can't make it worse. Yeah, that's right. It's a floor. And we also think it's good governance. The city council should not be passing plans it has no intention of implementing. So we think just from a principal point of view, it's a good idea that the city is held to account and uh, forced to implement its own plan. Do you see yourselves at Streets for All as kind of outsiders? Streets for All, our main organization today is a 501c4. That is still a nonprofit, but it can make endorsements. We also have a political action committee that is separate from the 501c4, and that's where we do our political work, make donations, independent expenditures and support or in opposition of candidates, et cetera. And then Healthy Streets LA is its whole other thing. It's, a, it's its own committee. So I don't know if I'd categorize us as outsiders because of a few things. Number one, we work really closely with LADOT, with the mayor's office, and with individual council offices on all sorts of things, projects, motions, uh, you name it. Number two, in some cases, our C4 serves as a community-based organization to do outreach. We are paid sometimes by LADOT or by Metro through their consultants to do outreach work for specific projects. That in no way ties our hands from calling a spade a spade. If we see LADOT doing good work, we want to call that out and congratulate them and thank them. And if we see LADOT not doing good work, ignoring the mobility plan, creating unsafe conditions, we're going to call that out, whether or not we have a contract and are paid a few bucks to promote a project. I don't know if you call it outsider or insider, but yeah. we, we work very much in the halls of City Hall, but we maintain our independence and we never shy away from calling things out when we don't think they're being done in the right way. Some groups and people have criticized it, saying that the streets that are repaved are going to be more in better off, more well-represented neighborhoods. Is that really a criticism of Healthy Streets LA? Well, first of all, that's not true. Each council district gets the same number of miles of repaving each year. This year, I want to say the number is about 16 miles per council district, which is down from previous years due to budget cuts. Each council district gets the same. So it would be untrue to say that Council District 11 gets more repaving than Council District 9. Having said that, one could make an argument that it should not all be the same, that maybe today every council district should get 16 miles, and then certain council districts of higher need, uh, Council District 8, Council District 9, 14, 1, should get more, perhaps. And we have come out publicly, and I'll say it here again, in support of that idea. We think that the repaving schedule by being equal isn't necessarily equitable. And we would support the city adding additional resources to add more repaving in the districts that are of higher need. We support that. The criticism was that higher need districts wouldn't get the infrastructure. The criticism I have heard is that Healthy Streets LA isn't equitable. And when we ask why, we hear a couple of things. One is the repaving issue, which you just brought up. And again, even if Healthy Streets LA passes, there's nothing to stop the city from making the repaving schedule more equitable. It's two separate things, and we would support that. Two, some might argue, well, the mobility plan is inequitable. But I'm not sure I agree with that. If you look at the mobility plan, there's a ton of improvements citywide, including a lot in South LA, East LA, and the San Fernando Valley. 
This will be up before the voters in March, right? This will be before the voters in March. We've raised two million bucks for the campaign, and the city is going to see billboards along its most dangerous streets. It's going to see online ads, text banking, door knocking. It's a serious campaign. We've been endorsed by 40 neighborhood councils, which is close to half of all of them. We're we're optimistic. Our polling is very good. And we think this is just a good governance measure that is going to make the streets a lot safer for everybody. What else you got going on over there at Streets for All? They're going to make a park out of a freeway. Marina Central Park is our idea to reimagine the 90 freeway. LA's shortest freeway. It is the least trafficked freeway in LA County. It was supposed to be part of a 41 mile freeway that was supposed to go from Lincoln Boulevard, which is State Route 1, to the 91 in East Anaheim. And the communities didn't want it and they fought against it. And so this 3.1 mile stub was built, which essentially today is used as an on and off ramp to the 405. Just for people who are across the country, actually, maybe 405 is world famous. I don't know. I think pictures of LA's famous day before Thanksgiving traffic jams, you know, that's the 405 for anyone that isn't sure what it is. It is uh, one of the most congested freeways in the country. And it's the freeway that goes from the valley to the city, past LAX, et cetera. So this is a unique opportunity. Every other freeway is a lot longer, has a lot more traffic, and would be far more difficult to even rethink. But the Marina Freeway is unique. And so we looked at this and we said, maybe there's a better use of 130 acres in the middle of West Los Angeles in a climate crisis and a housing affordability crisis. And so Marina Central Park would keep the trees that currently go along the freeway, but would, instead of the freeway, replace it with 4,000 units of affordable housing, a very large new park in the middle of West LA, a bus rapid transit line, dedicated bike trails and walking paths. It would reconnect the community of Delray, which is divided by this freeway, with new bridges and walkways to get to what is today north of the freeway to south of the freeway. And it would reactivate Sentinella Creek, which today there's a freeway on top of it. So no one can enjoy that creek or access it or do anything on it. We have submitted a grant application to the Reconnecting Communities Program. This is part of President Biden's infrastructure bill for a $2 million planning grant to conduct a 22-month-long feasibility study, which would analyze everything from traffic impacts and environmental impacts to water and everything else you can imagine, along with 22 months of community engagement going to every possible meeting you can imagine, hosting meetings, online surveys, online and offline meetings to educate the community and to hear their feedback. And uh, we'll see if we get awarded the money, but I think it's an idea we're studying. Did this originate with you or is are you inspired by other places turning a freeway into a park or housing? This idea originated with me and I worked closely with the CEO of a great landscape architecture firm called SWA which we're also working with currently to extend the Bona Creek bike path. Our teams work really well together and uh, they donated pro bono their talent to create the flyover video and the renderings you see. And we work together on the concept. If somebody wants to see that, we can link to it, but is it an easy to remember link? Marinacentralpark.com. Okay. So when you go around talking to people about this, do you talk about the craziness of widening freeways and building too many highways, splitting up communities and all the new thought around that? We have a lot of different conversations about this project. Politically, we've had a lot of support. We have Mayor Karen Bass. We have State Assembly Member Isaac Bryan, State Senator Lola Smallwood-Cuevas. 
the city of Culver City, the Southern California Association of Governments, or SCAG, and the Delray Neighborhood Council in support. When we brought it to those entities, we gave them just data, numbers. This freeway is this short, the shortest in the county. This freeway gets this much traffic, least traffic in the county. And we know we have an affordability crisis in Los Angeles where maybe if we build more affordable housing, children of families that currently live on the West side can actually stay on the West side if they want to. And this is a really unique opportunity because it's a state highway. So we don't need to necessarily get permission from the federal government to do anything on this highway. And the state owns the land. So that means that there's no right of way acquisition costs. And if the freeway was decommissioned, the land could be given potentially for free to an, a nonprofit developer who would then build 100% affordable housing, mixed use housing. So yoga studio, coffee shop, market, et cetera, underneath. So people don't need to drive to do just everyday basic errands. It's a really unique thing. We're having a lot of conversations, mostly positive. There's also people that have trouble with the idea of even thinking about change and are trying to kill even the idea of studying it. So there's always opposition and there's always two sides to a story, but I'll say it again. No bulldozers are pulling up. It's just a study. And I think it's worth studying. Okay. So we've talked about Healthy Streets LA and the Marina Freeway being converted to a park and affordable housing. What else is Streets for All working on? The other thing I'll mention is we raised $420,000 this year to do a feasibility study to extend the Bionic Creek bike path. And we are nearing the completion of that. The study will be done by the end of the year. We're turning it over to LA's Bureau of Engineering. And we are hoping that that will be used to apply for construction funding next summer for the Active Transportation Program Cycle 7. That's a grant program of the California Transportation Commission. And if it gets awarded for construction funding, construction could begin as early as 2025, and maybe it would be done by the Olympics. How far are we from the complete bike network or the, a way to get around without cars through the whole city? Well, if Healthy Streets LA passes, we will be closer. I can't really give you a timeline because there's all sorts of other things that need to go into it. DOT is dramatically under-resourced. They have positions authorized that they haven't filled. The city's central personnel department that's responsible for filling open positions itself is understaffed. There's all sorts of kind of boring bureaucratic stuff that's preventing real progress. But my hope is when Healthy Streets LA passes, the city will be under pressure to deliver. There's a right of action there. We don't want to sue the city, but we're not going to hesitate if they continue to ignore their own plan. So it would behoove the city to hire up, get the departments ready, and find a formula that um, gets these projects done quicker. Thank you, Michael Schneider. Streets for All. We'll talk again. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate your effort. And next, we're going to go to the writer of the Guardian article about lower cancer rates in walkable neighborhoods. And walkable neighborhood is a bikeable neighborhood, right? Yeah. What do you think about walkable neighborhoods, Todd? Detroit's approaching it from a different perspective. It's not so much about building sidewalks and making it easier to walk around. It's more about bringing back retail in the neighborhood, retail that used to be there, because that serves the purpose of economic development and reducing what they call leakage, which is where Detroiters have to go outside the city to do their basic shopping and retail. And by developing in the neighborhoods, you create a 15-minute neighborhood, but then you also create more economic activity within the city of Detroit, which is a win-win for everybody. All right. Well, let's hear this interview by Tyler Nichols. I often talk on the show about how I start most mornings reading the LA Times and then the New York Times and then Streets blog. 
But lately, I've been going to the Guardian U.S. because a couple articles really caught my eye. And we have a writer from the Guardian U.S., Aliyah Uteyuova, is here with us today. Hey, Aliyah, welcome to Bike Talk. Hi, great to be here, Taylor. What caught my eye was the article that you wrote about density. And I wonder if you could just quickly tell the audience what the study was that you wrote the article about. Researchers at Columbia University and NYU published research last week on the link and reduced risk of obesity-related cancer associated with living in a more walkable neighborhood. And this is a first-of-its-kind study that looked at two decades' worth of data, and specifically it focused on women as they move about their neighborhood within a a one-and-a-half-mile radius and how that affects their long-term health. Wow. We often compare walkability to bikeability also, that a neighborhood that is walkable is also bikeable. Mm -hmm. One of the things we talk about on the show all the time are 15-minute cities, And it seems like this is research that says 15-minute cities are not only good for your health, they actually help prevent cancer. Exactly. Specifically, 13 different types of cancer. Most reduction in living in a walkable city after observing more than 14,000 women between the ages of 34 and 65. The most association came with postmenopausal breast cancer, also ovarian cancer, and endometrial cancer, those have seen the most link to a reduction when it came to living in a walkable neighborhood. Wow, that's amazing. And I love that the study focused on women Mm -hmm. because we often think that if we build bicycle infrastructure that women can use, then we are opening the door to many more people using the bicycle infrastructure There's a divide in the bike world between the vehicular cyclists, someone who rides their bike like they would drive a car, and then someone who needs and wants protected bike lanes and things like that. And that's part of what makes a dense city worth living in. Yes. And actually, women are twice more likely than men to get obesity-related cancer. When they can't walk on a regular basis. Just in general in the United States, it has to do with fat cells in men and women can make estrogen and other hormones, which are related to risk of many female cancers, such as postmenopausal breast cancer. So that might be the reason why women are more susceptible to obesity-related cancer. You talk in the article about improving the built environment can promote healthy habits and protect people from obesity-related illnesses. And Mm -hmm. what kind of built environment are you talking about? This is, relates to your daily life and the necessities and destinations you might take and the way you can get there. Living in your one and a half mile vicinity, which the study looked at, that, that having the post office, that having a bus stop for you to get to the other destination, that having a local grocery store or daycare for a child or any other activities that make up your built environment Having a walkable access to it through sidewalks, pedestrian lanes is what makes your built environment better and makes you want to get to your places and actually able to get these places without needing a car, which as you and your listeners might be familiar with, the United States is a very car-centric country and that's something that neighborhoods that are more walkable can address. Right. Now you write for the Guardian US and so you are in the United States, correct? Yes, correct. You're in New York and that's where you're published? 
Yes. And in fact, a lot of the women recruited for this study were also based in New York and the tri-state area. Right. You know, we often call that area, that one and a half mile area around where you live, we call that Aaronsville because that's where you do so many of your short errands. Like you said, going to the pharmacy or it used to be the video store, but no one goes to a video store anymore. On Bike Talk, we like to promote the idea of protected bike lanes and wide sidewalks and street lighting and things like that to make it easier for people to do those kinds of errands on foot or on bike. Yeah. In fact, related to this is this idea of complete streets. Maybe you've heard of it, this philosophy around designing your streets and addressing them to suit better for the pedestrians, for the bikers, and to give priority for public transit. And one such place that had complete streets transformations and built that into their ordinance was Baltimore back in 2021. That is something so interesting because bulk of the Baltimore city is designed around cars. However, one third of their residents lack access to cars and it's not by choice. So people can't afford to either get somewhere safely without a car or they can't get there because they don't have a car. And it makes sense to invest in the city's infrastructure when you have such a large percentage of the population relying on public transport and on foot. Right. This was a 24-year study. This was pretty intense. Yes. The study followed also people and women who not only lived in the tri-state area, but maybe women who reached the retirement age and moved to Florida and through their medical records have had some of these 13 cancers come up. Another finding from the study is while it didn't look at neighborhood level poverty, researchers showed that walkable neighborhoods appeared to be especially beneficial to women in low income areas, meaning that for women living in low income areas, the risk of getting these cancers was so much less if it was a walkable area. If it was a walkable neighborhood. Again, on Bike Talk, we talk all the time about the importance of a walkable neighborhood and a bikeable neighborhood and how it makes for a quieter, cleaner, safer neighborhood with more eyes on the street, like Jane Jacobs might have said. But this study and your article really shows us that it also helps not cure cancer, but relieve the rates of cancer. Yes, it is also a look at how urban planning and how the city plays a role in your house and the health of individuals and how promoting better policies for infrastructure, promoting walkability and investing in pedestrian walkway, sidewalks, something you think everyone should have, but sadly not, can have such a beneficial effect on long-term health. Right. You mentioned in your article about the Federal Highway Act of 1956 and how it created 41,000 miles of highway. What were the ill effects of that? The Federal Highway Act of 1956 spurred construction of miles and miles of highway that fundamentally reshaped the United States. They reshaped the travel and trade, but that convenience came at a cost, which resulted in destroyed homes, devalued property, and split communities. Most of the communities that took the brunt of the destruction were communities of color. And we see that to this day when it comes to air pollution, noise pollution, increased traffic congestion, and especially when it comes to getting places. You might think that you are bird's distance away from a Walmart. You see the sign of the supermarket 
only supermarket that you can get fresh produce, right? But when it's encircled with highways, that five-minute walk turns into a 25-minute roundabout walk of getting there, which can be dangerous and can be so limiting. So that's what the highways have done. It made way for separated communities, food deserts, and that convenience came at a cost. Right. And it, it made neighborhoods completely unwalkable. That's exactly what you were just saying. You know, you can see the store. It's right there. But mm-hmm. you have to cross an eight lane arterial road to get there. Or even worse, if it's a highway, you might have to walk under the highway or walk a mile or two out of the way to get across the highway. So they have made neighborhoods completely unwalkable. Yes. And there's also what do you do? When there is no pedestrian crossway, do you risk your life? Do you jaywalk? Do you then get fined for that jaywalk? Right. And there's been numerous reporting on how places in the United States that are surrounded by highways, people trying to get from point A to point B have to find the blind spot of crossing the street. And that's where they get fined for jaywalking. Yeah. The worst case scenario is that they then get hit Mm -hmm. and they become just a statistic in this traffic violence epidemic that we're in. We also talk a lot on Bike Talk about getting the message out to broader audiences. And I think that's what was really great about your article. You can find me on Twitter at Aliyah U-T-E. And and on The Guardian? And on The Guardian website, exactly, for the series that we have called America's Dirty Divide, which addresses environmental justice and pollution and people who take the brunt of it. Well, Aliyah, thank you very much for coming on Bike Talk. Again, thank you for your article, because I really do think the more mass audiences that read articles like yours understand, wait a minute, I want to be able to walk to my local store to run my errands. And so what do I have to do? How do I have to get involved to make that into a safe, interesting, comfortable walk? Yeah, totally. And thank you so much for having me and for sharing this in your podcast. So, Lindsay, you have a lot to do with livable communities. You've looked at rates of illness. Yeah, and it's just really exciting that this is becoming such a worldwide movement. And of course, everybody saw that article. So it feels like a really good time in the movement where the data is proving what we all know in our hearts. Kudos to you, Lindsay. You're doing a lot of good work around livable communities. Thank you, Seamus. And Seamus, you went and you did some investigative reporting because we had these interviews and back-to-back episodes on the center bike lane on Valencia in San Francisco. Yeah, and I wanted to go check it out for myself. It was interesting. I think that from my perspective, San Francisco has so much more to offer cyclists than Los Angeles. So there was that. But when I rode down Valencia, I really enjoyed the center bike lane. I see that it has its drawbacks, but I think I'm in favor of keeping the pilot and seeing if it can be improved in some way personally. But here's my interview with Tom McGuire from SFMTA. I'm here today with Tom McGuire of the MTA in San Francisco, at least for a little bit longer. Congratulations on the new role. What is your role at SFMTA? And I hear you have a new position somewhere else. I'm the streets director here at the SFMTA. Been doing this job for about nine years, and I've been overseeing all of our efforts around Vision Zero, bike lanes, expanding all the different ways to get around San Francisco in active mobility modes. And what was your role in the process here? We're on Valencia Street. This is Bike Talk's, I think, third or fourth segment on Valencia Street. 
in San Francisco where there is a center running bike lane. It is protected by bollards, has been a point of contention for various advocates. How did it get to this configuration? What was your role? Well, like you and your listeners, I think Valencia Street might be the most interesting bike lane in America right now, and I'm happy to have played a part in it. I think the place the story starts for me on Valencia is Valencia Street, like any street in San Francisco or any major city, is not a blank slate. There's always been a lot going on on Valencia Street. It's always been an important cycling corridor, but it's also a really important small business corridor, and it's an important neighborhood center for the Mission District. And we embarked on the effort to create a protected bike lane on Valencia Street as the San Francisco was coming out of the pandemic. And we had to wrestle with the unique challenge of supporting and helping the small businesses who are using public space to stay alive and do outdoor dining and all this amazing stuff that enhances the public space in the realm in San Francisco while separating cyclists from the thing that was most dangerous to them before we put in the bike lane. And that was double parking, a door zone class two bike lane where all the pressure and inefficiency of the curb was spilling out and affecting cyclist safety. So we were trying to deal with the facts as they were on the street and make a big leap forward in terms of cyclist safety and protection. This is a pilot, correct? Correct, that's right. Is the thought that this will lead to something more expansive or that this pilot, if successful, would become something permanent. So I think the point of the pilot is to learn from it. And we don't want to prejudge that the configuration that's on the street right now would be the permanent configuration. It almost certainly won't be. There's lots we can learn about the way cyclists, when they're protected at the center of the street, behave, whether drivers are able to resect the bike lane as much as they should, and how all that double parking and stuff at the curb works itself out. And we also haven't seen the final chapter on what outdoor dining and use of the curbside for public life is in San Francisco. We're taking in all this data during the pilot period and going to try to make a decision on what a permanent protected bike lane looks like. But I think the key principle is it will be protected. That is a policy decision the city's made. And protected. So what does protected mean exactly? And is it protected now? So I consider what's out there protected, and I know some people don't think it's protected enough, but to me, protected means a couple things. It means that there's a physical part of the cross-section of the roadway that is only for cyclists. That's what the center lane is. It means that there is some kind of vertical barrier, which is right now curb and posts, but vertical barrier that is both physically separating vehicles from entering that bike lane, but also sending a visual cue to drivers that this is not a space for cars, this is a space for cyclists. And finally, we've got some things at the intersection to reinforce that as well, because the intersection of course, where everybody has to mix, and we want to make sure that that feeling of protection exists there too. So that's my idea of protection. Cars know that it's not supposed to be used. I saw a picture of a semi-truck, I think, shared on some social media, and it was just parked in the bike lane. Right. What happens in a situation like that? Is there ramifications for the truck, or is that okay? It looked like it was blocking the whole lane. Yeah, it's not okay, and protection is not perfection. We are learning from this, obviously. Uh, there are ramifications for drivers who do things like park in the bike lane. We've given probably at this point over a thousand parking tickets on Valencia since the pilot launched this summer. We have put extra parking control and extra parking enforcement to the street because of just how important it is to get people to follow the rules of the road. So yes, there's ramifications. That's not there by design. And we have been doing some things since the pilot launched to reinforce that you can't drive into the bike lane. Uh, posts, signs, and other reflective materials. Several advocates are asking for a more pedestrianized Valencia Street or more multimodal. Were there iterations of potential pilot that had those components or was this kind of the best that could be come up with? And is this pilot currently being seen as a success? How do we feel about it in the MTA? 
Yeah, well, it's too soon to say whether it's a success or not. We are collecting a ton of data because of how much attention there is to this bike lane. We have promised to collect lots of data and be very transparent about what's happening with cycling volume, cycle safety, but also traffic volumes, double parking, and, and those things as well. So jury's still out, but we do get lots of qualitative feedback that people do feel much safer. It is a much calmer space in the center of the road than, again, the previous configuration. We don't want to compare what we've built in the pilot to a perfect situation where we could just wish away all the cars, wish away the deliveries that these small businesses yeah. and even wish away the outdoor dining that they depend on. We need to live in the real world and the real environment that small businesses in San Francisco are operating right now, and it's a harsh environment. And so I compare the way the street is currently configured to the way it used to be when cyclists had to basically ride in a door-zone bike lane that was constantly double-parked. You really couldn't ride a block on Valencia without having to swerve around a double-parked car and worry about being doored. And so if your goal is perfection, of course this isn't perfect. Is this a huge step forward from where it was before? Absolutely. Have any other transportation agencies from like around the state or around the country reached out and talked about this? Are there other places around the country that have a similar predicament yeah. that are looking at similar solutions and pilots? So we know there's a lot of ideas out there about how to do protected bike lanes. And there are not a lot of examples of central running bike lanes in the US. I think places that have taken protected bike lane design the furthest have done it in places where the underlying conditions were a little more favorable. So we've got a pretty narrow two-way, two-lane street with lots of parking pressure and lots of delivery pressure on the sides. The streets like that are not places where most cities choose to put protected bike lanes, and so we're trying to adapt Valencia, which again, always going to be an important bike street in San Francisco, whether there's a lane there or not. So we have to protect the cyclists who want to use it. But I think the uniqueness of the conditions make it a little hard to compare to other cities that have maybe gone in different directions with their protection and the way they think about their whole network. Can you go into what makes Valencia Street specifically unique? When I just rode the bike lane, it reminded me of some streets in Southern California cities, Santa Monica, um, Venice. It reminds me of Main Street a little bit. I could see right. something like this working in other places. What do you think it is that makes Valencia unique from streets in other cities? First of all, the land uses. The pilot is eight blocks long, and those eight blocks are almost continuously lined with retail businesses, small grain retail businesses, mom and pop retail mm -hmm. businesses. San Francisco does not have a lot of chain businesses, especially on streets like Valencia. There's no alley for them to load in. There are a few driveways here and there, but most of these businesses are taking their deliveries in and out the front door. And that's something that exists in other cities, but at the density and fine grainness we have in San Francisco, I think that's a little bit unique. It's also a two-way street that's barely over 40 feet wide. And in a lot of parts of the country, I know places where parking protected bike lanes were pioneered in New York, they're on very wide one-way avenues where, again, the land use is similar to Valencia, but there's a lot more to play with in the street conditions from a design point of view. And so the designers who were looking at this really felt like the width was constrained. They felt that the need to preserve a decent amount of access for the businesses just steered us away from the curbside design and towards the center running. So somebody was killed on the street recently. Some advocates are now screaming that it is because of the center bike lane. My understanding is that the agency's position is that it is definitely not a result of the configuration. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. So the last question, I guess, is where does it go from here? You said it most likely won't stay like this. Right. But this, to many people, is a marked improvement over what was there. Would it go back to what we had? 
Well, I think where it goes is we bring in more dimensions of the things that advocates are rightly asking us to focus on, including pedestrianization, including different ways to activate street life that are supportive of the small businesses, but also drive us away from having so many cars in the public right of way. We're really excited that there are advocate groups that are working to pilot expanding car-free hours. We have a car-free dining day every week in Valencia. We want to expand the hours and times of that and maybe create a little bit more imagination among both the public, merchants, cyclists, drivers, everybody who's using the street about just what a pedestrian space in the middle of San Francisco could look like. And I'm talking about that in an iterative way because that's how we think about streets in San Francisco. We want to be using the best tools we have at our hands, but we want to do it in an iterative way, bring communities along, bring great advocates who have all this tremendous energy around pedestrianization and the businesses that have so much energy around trying to find unique ways to recover from the pandemic. There is a lot of common ground there. The street is the place we find that common ground, and we're just excited to use the pilot and let it continue to evolve to to help us find that common ground. Tom was super cool. He's going to be leaving SFMTA and going to San Jose and hopefully getting that BART connected to San Jose from San Francisco. All right. Thanks, Seamus, for that interview. Thanks for coming on, Todd. And we try to stay up on Detroit because we're at WNUC there. We should have you on more often. Taylor's having dinner with his friends in Park City. Who's going to give us the bike quote? This is from Horatio Earl's autobiography. Horatio Earl was a bicyclist in Detroit who was upset that the roads weren't being improved for bicycling. And so he eventually ran for the Michigan Senate and won. His platform was to improve roads for bicycling. And this was in the 1890s. He got into the Michigan Senate and raised such a stir that they made him the state highway commissioner in Michigan. And then he founded MDOT, the state highway department. From chapter seven of his book, it says, I often hear nowadays the automobile instigated good roads, that the automobile is the parent of good roads. Well, the truth is the bicycle is the father of the good roads movement in this country. He's like the inverse of Robert Moses, like the anti-Robert Moses. Yeah, quite a figure. Not only did he found MDOT, but he also found the American Road Builders Association. He was president of the League of American Bicyclists for a couple of years at the turn of the century and just did a whole lot of great things. Thank you, everyone, for this episode. Stay safe. Thanks, everyone. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and run all around, run all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat.